The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard Flight 97 of the Squawk Ident podcast recorded on Monday, December 6th. 2021 from the aviator sound studios from somewhere in southern california on today's flight we have the honor in speaking with a captain whose journey in aviation is filled with opportunity courage and determination we first introduced him on flight 89 remembering 9 11 where he shared his experiences on that unforgettable day that changed the course of history he is a veteran of the united states air force with 28 years of service as an instructor, evaluator, and safety officer on the KC-135. He also has amassed more than 30 years on the flight line at Legacy Airlines, both as a flight engineer on the Boeing 727 and 747, and as a pilot on the Fokker 100, the Boeing 757-76, the DC-9, and currently the A320 family of aircraft. Captain Pete Lindner joins us today to share his amazing journey. Now that our pre-flight is complete, let's get ready to push off the gate and start those virtual podcast engines. Flight 97 of Squawk Ident is officially underway. Assisting at the controls today is a superb aviator and Squawk Ident podcast co-host. He is a former international professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AMP and avionics tech, an RC aircraft commander, a boat skipper, commercial drone operator, and currently an Airbus pilot for Legacy Airlines. The name we use here on the show is an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. From his mobile podcast studio high atop the seventh floor of the Renaissance Hotel in beautiful downtown Phoenix, Arizona, where he is recovering from the infamous Cornish pasties. Help us in welcoming our very own Mr. Rob D. Rob, how you doing? I'm going to go into a food coma here in a minute if, I, if we don't get this thing over with. That... That Cornish pasty or pasty, I don't know how they call it, was really good. So I, I had the, uh, I think they called it the original, which had like uh, beef, potatoes, onions, um, peppers, and, and it was huge too. I mean, it was probably twice the size of my stomach. <laughs> I ate it all. <laughs> Man, I love that place. Every time I get a layover downtown in yeah. Phoenix, that yeah. is a staple. Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty good. I uh, can't wait to try another one, different flavor next time. Yeah, and we've featured uh, the Cornish, Cornish pasties uh, on the show uh, a while back, about a year ago. Oh, do we? When we were doing the uh, you know from the plate uh, segments that we haven't really done in a while, so maybe hopefully we'll get a little yeah. more into that uh, on a future episode. But yeah, that that's a cool, fantastic location. Good beer uh, upstairs yeah. and downstairs uh, eating areas i like the upstairs spot because they've got pool tables and things like that and and yeah. the music's louder up there yep yeah yeah and i'm sorry i'm late because i uh actually had a uh a surprise lunch date with one of my mentors as a, a young man growing up remember we first we had a uh 
we interviewed Colonel Mark Furman. So had lunch uh, with his dad, John Furman. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So and everyone down there last minute. That, that's fantastic. And how, how's everyone yeah. doing? Everybody's good. Everybody's good. I living out here in Arizona and uh, figure I'd reach out to him and see if what they're doing. And he's like, well, I only have time for lunch. So, all right. But still, it is fantastic. So, and you know, when you're on a layover, yeah. it's always a good idea. If you know someone in the area and you have the time to reach out because life is short and you never know, things change in an instant. I mean, we, we have yeah. lived through this here in the last few years with this pandemic. If you've been flying long enough, you've lived through quite a few of these cyclical cycles and, and you never know when you might change equipment base or, or even not have the opportunity to fly for a little while. So that's right. It's, it's fantastic yep. to hear that you took that opportunity. Yeah, capitalize. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, we're excited today because today's featured guest is an Airbus captain at Legacy Airlines. His start in aviation began at the age of 15 years old when he took his first commercial flight from San Jose, California to San Diego, California, and thus was bit by the flying bug. After 70 hours in general aviation flight training, he joined the U.S. Air Force as a commissioned officer, finding himself flying the KC-135As, E's, R's, and Q's. He's here today to share his fantastic journey with us. We are honored to have Captain Pete Lindner join us from his beautiful chateau in the gorgeous city of Carlsbad, California. Captain Pete, good morning and welcome to the podcast. Hey, good morning, Tony and Rob, and thank you for inviting me to aboard the flight today. I appreciate it. Oh, we're happy to share anything with you. We're very, very happy that uh, that you're here speaking with us welcome today. Welcome aboard. Yeah, now, last time you were on the show uh, was during the 9-11 special that we did here in 2021, right. this, this year. And, uh, you know, we were flying together. We had just met. We were flying together. We had a long Vegas layover. And we got along immediately uh, on the flight deck and, and shared a couple stories. And I was telling you what I was in the middle of doing and producing. Right. And you were more than willing to, you know, help me out and, and let me interview you. And I got to tell you, we had a lot of fun. Uh, in that uh, in the in the layover hotel, setting up equipment, using like cell phones for video cameras, and and it was cool. It worked out pretty smooth. Yeah, it was a good episode too. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was it really was. And if you haven't heard Flight eighty nine, uh, I recommend after this episode to go back and take a listen. It's a little longer episode. I think it ended up being three hours, but that's because we had six interviews that we conducted and the YouTube videos from that each each interview is independently uploaded onto YouTube and just go to Squawk Ident Podcast on YouTube and and take a look. Um, those interviews, some of them were just pulling at the heartstrings, man. Um, between uh, Captain Evans and 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 Captain Felish and and even yours, Pete, was was inspiring right. to hear. Um, so yeah, definitely check those out on the YouTube. Yeah, it was a very emotional day and a lot of people had some special stories to tell. So, yeah, but let's, let's find out about your fantastic journey. Now you were telling me in the pre-show, uh, we're kind of reviewing your story and kind of getting ironed out everything we were going to talk about today. And you're telling me that at 15 years old, you had never flown on an airplane before and you took a flight to go visit. Was it your sister? Right. She was down in grad school at San Diego. And back in the early 70s, late 60s, uh, which is kind of my era, 
you know, people didn't fly as commonly as they do today. My kids have been all over the world, of course, and uh, I'm sure your kids as well at age two and above. And uh, it just wasn't a, it was such a major event to go fly in an airplane that it just didn't happen like it does today. And there wasn't the frequency either. So it was a big event for me to go down there. And uh, I think I was on a PSA flight. Tony, I was telling you earlier, there was the, uh, that was back in the days of the uh, short shorts and the high boots of the flight attendants. And I think that was, uh, that helped out my desire to be in the aviation business. It's kind of fun to be a part of that exciting era. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what a, what a fantastic treat to hop on an airplane for the first time and to see all this experience that, you know, adults were getting to be a part of all the time and you're at 15 years old and you're just starting to really mature and come into adulthood. So you're starting to realize that yeah, I could do that. Not just like, Oh, I want to do that, but I, I could do that. What was the highlight that you most remember from that flight? I just see in the cars down below and they're very small. They're, you see stoplights, you see things you recognize from the ground and uh, to get to see them from the air was pretty cool. I also have to say, I remember walking on board the flight because, uh, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, things weren't very complex. You didn't have a Tesla that had a really cool, you know, uh, computer board that you would steer with. But uh, to look up in the cockpit and see, you know, a 727 flight deck or a DC-9 flight deck, it's pretty complex, you know, relative to what we were used to. So it was very impressive to get a view of that and go, wow, these guys you know, pretty much know what every button is. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite moments is when uh, a younger person will ask to come onto the flight deck, uh, on the boarding during the boarding process. And they look around at all the buttons and, and, you know, usually five, six, seven, eight years old. And they look around and they're like, Whoa. And, and I love it when they ask, do you really know what all these buttons and lights do? No. No. <laughs> and I'll go, I don't know. <laughs> It lights, it goes yeah. ding, and I go, what's it doing? <laughs> but the truth yeah. is we do, and and it's amazing. Right. You, you think that's impossible to know what everything does, but, you know. You just have to yeah. tell them, right? If it's shiny, those are the ones we touch all the time. And if it's dusty, we never touch we never it. Touch. So, <laughs> And if you have a question, just go on YouTube and you figure it out. Yeah, exactly, right. YouTube. I mean, it's, it's amazing what's on YouTube now. At these, uh, How to yes. start up a 737 video. I'm like, how does yeah. your airline allow you to do that and not get reprimanded? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so you, you had this flight. It inspired you. And you were 15. When did the leap happen? where you started thinking, I'm going to take flight training. Right. Uh, well, you know, I can even back it up a little bit as we all can. And you see signs from your past. You like to build airplane models or you like to draw airplane pictures. So you see everything leading up to it. And then when the light turns on that, hey, this is a pretty neat thing. I'd say it was probably age 17 where I figured that, um, you know, I, I want to be an airline pilot. We had a, at um, down at the end of our block was probably the nicest house in, in the five neighborhoods around mine and it was owned by a Pan Am captain. And we were all in awe of him. And I was like, wow, I kind of want to do what he does. He travels the world. He makes good money. You know, I didn't understand the job at the time, but as it turned out, it turned out to be the perfect job for a guy like me. So um, I'd say around 17 when I decided to do it and we looked into probably the best way to become an airline pilot was to start off with a degree in 
in uh, aviation when I decided to attend San Jose State, which had one of the best aviation programs in the 80s at the time. And that's where I enrolled. Yeah, so San Jose State aviation program. Now, times are a little different. They didn't have all these programs catered to getting restricted ATPs and things like that. Right. What's the difference between the kind of program you went through to what you've heard the newer programs are involving? Yeah, ours was more of a broader background in, in aviation. So you had two, two forks you could uh, go along. One was the aviation management fork, which also taught you a little bit of the basics of flying. So we did get to do some uh, Frasca flying, you know, simulator flying, things like that. And you learn the very basics of flying, as well as uh, a lot of engineering stuff too, like uh, you know, stress, stress analysis on air wings and uh, structures analysis. We tore apart airplane uh, engines, both jet and uh, piston, and put them back together and had to run them again. So we, it was really a great program back in the day. We probably graduated, I want to say, 800 a year. So it was a pretty big-sized program. Now, unfortunately, it's down to about 100. Uh, people total in the program at San Jose State, but it w- was an excellent program of the the day. The other fork that you could have taken was more the maintenance side. It taught you really deep the nuts and bolts, uh, airplanes and engines and theory. Yeah. Know? So that's what I wanted to do. Is I thought that's all you had to do was get a degree and then go out and be an airline pilot. So back in the, in my day, we didn't really have, you know, we didn't have access to uh, media, social media, and internet information and i didn't have a mentor at the time so i didn't know that you needed oh actual flight time say to yeah. uh, to get hired to become a commercial pilot and so i kind of found that out along the way as i went and again once you get up to that level there's two forks in the road there's a civilian fork and the military fork and uh, i just didn't have the hours at the time when i graduated college and ended up getting out with 70 hours and uh, if i wanted to fly i had to probably go through the military Whereas if there are other jobs in aviation that I could have done working for, say, a Lockheed or a Boeing, and you can take that uh, route with my degree. But um, I really did want to do the flying. I thought I'd give it a try and see how far I could get with that. Yeah. Now, 70 hours of general aviation, normally aspirated, was that all single time or did you have some twin time in there too? Yeah. No, it was all single time. It's all single engine time, like Cessna 172s and things like that? Yes, exactly. And I actually quit for a year in there. So my parents, uh, God bless them, they started me off and, uh, you know, with a little bit of money that they had to uh, get my flying lessons, to get my license. Back then it was 20 bucks an hour. Uh, oh, wow. So it, it, but that was a lot to me back then. 20 but, an uh, hour yeah. for the airplane or with airplane yeah. and instructor? Yeah, airplane instructor, I want to say it was 28. So uh, <laughs> it was pretty cheap. I know. Yeah. Wow. So it cost me a couple thousand dollars to get my license, but, uh, mm-hmm. uh, it, but I did quit for one period back then. I had on my long cross country ended up, uh, I lost my uh, alternator and lost all my DC power and couldn't radio or navigate. So I was kind of lost to be honest with you. I was out in the middle of central California and there's several air force bases out there from Mather down to castle. And I had no idea where I was. So I put it down on a dirt road, probably the hardest landing I've ever had. And thank God I didn't know about it at the time that it was going to be hard, but I went over a set of power lines came to a stop before a pond and uh, they couldn't eat the instructors that came to fetch me and fix the plane. Couldn't land. <laughs> they had to land somewhere else because they couldn't get in. So I guess I got pretty lucky on that one, but uh, 
Wow. Turned out I was in the, oh, I'm sorry, Rob, go ahead. No, I was going to say, wow, and, and you landed it. And they, <laughs> I mean, you dinged it up a little, but <laughs> they couldn't land it. Yeah, well, spot. then I, I got out of the plane. It turns out I was in the backyard of some farmer in Central California. And I knock on his door, and here's this old guy who comes to the door just wearing his underwear and a T-shirt. He, goes, he sees the airplane in his backyard. He goes, well, I'll be goddamned. But uh, <laughs> he, he, didn't, he didn't even have a, a phone, so he actually had to drive me 10 miles into town. Oh, wow. to, oh like, my goodness! I could call the aviation department, and back wow. in those days too, those those aviation departments, those uh, companies that ran in Cessnas, they were kind of fly by night. They they didn't emphasize uh, uh, you know safety and maintenance as much as they do today, I think. But uh, yeah, so they were they were mad at me that they had to send people out to fix it. But uh, so it ended up being a two day uh, long cross country solo. <laughs> <laughs> Did you stay with the farmer? No, they threw me back, and I, I got a write up the next day. So it worked out okay. All right. Uh, oh, well, well, wow, that's a great story. You know, thank you very much for sharing that. Um, and it, and it's a testament to your your uh, your intuition and skills because at a low time pilot studying training and on a long cross country and you put it down in a dirt road going over power lines and not hit yeah. anything and, and you can fly it you can reuse the airplane after you're done with it that's great <laughs> yeah yeah I, you know i'd like to take uh, i'd like to take credit for being a brilliant aviator but i was more like a very lucky young kid yeah. <laughs> and it worked out good uh, so. yeah well i'm glad it did yeah. now you, you talked about that you had a fork in the road after college and you know civilian or military route and you obviously you chose the military route how did that process work to just walk into a recruiter's office one day and say hey i'm here to fly yes and, and that's pretty much what it was and so uh <laughs> and this again was back before testing availability on media social media and uh, internet so i didn't know what to prepare for i just walked in and took an aviation test one day for the military and officer qualification test and Apparently did well enough to pass and um, got the slot. Uh, if I also may share another story with you that kind of uh, ties in with the 9-11 that we uh, talked about earlier. But there was one good scholarship at uh, San Jose State, uh, the Vincent Marine Scholarship at the time, offered $2,000 uh, to be used only for flying if you want it. And that, uh, you know, at $20 an hour, that was quite a few, that was a couple of ratings. That was going to help out greatly in making a, a choice down the road. <clears throat> I ended up interviewing for it, coming in uh, runner-up. And the uh, gentleman I came in runner-up to was Jason Dahl, who was eventually the captain on uh, the Shanksville airplane for United Airlines at 757. So he did go the civilian route. He did wow. get his hours. And who knows if that uh, scholarship was that fork in the road that he took hmm. led him to where he ended up uh, eventually. So uh, interesting story. But um, yeah, so yeah. I did not get it, and I did have to make the choice of either flying military or not flying at all. And you're, it's such a a small industry. We've we've said this a thousand times, if not more, on this program. The aviation industry, although there are, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pilots out there, in one way, shape, or form, it, it's only a matter of time before you can start connecting these dots, these you know small degrees of separation that separate one aviator from mm. another. So always mm. be, you know, be mindful, be kind, be compassionate to your fellow aviator because you never know who the, the person next to you 
uh, might right. end up being your boss one day. I mean, <laughs> if you want to look at it yeah. that way. Um, yeah. But it's a fantastic career and it's a fantastic profession. Um, and, and to be able to have that connection with someone who unfortunately was a victim of something so tragic that, I mean, I, the last time you and I spoke on the last interview that we had for the 9-11 show, you know, you said that moment in time was a, a moment that defined the future. Every, there was before 9-11, I remember you said, and then there's after 9-11. And everyone who was alive at that time knows the, the differentiation, the difference between um, before and after. And to be connected in that way is something special. Right. Now, you, you went into the United States Air Force, and when you join, you go through OCS, Officer Candidate School. Uh, and how long is that program? Like eight weeks? Well, they call it a 90-day wonder. So th there's three ways to get your commission. There's uh, ROTC, which you go through, you know, I think, your junior and senior years in college. There's the academies, Army, Navy, and Air Force academies. And uh, third way is the 90-day wonder, which is, uh, you know, three months of pretty intense training. Mm -hmm. um, nothing to what my some of my children have gone through. So I can't, uh, I can't really play it up. Like it was hard because they actually know the truth. And my wife was an Academy grad. She went to the Air Force Academy. So she, she looks kind of, uh, kind of down on my 90 days, but it was, it was tough. <laughs> it was probably the toughest thing I ever did for me, for a California kid coming out with long hair, and, you know, uh, getting yelled at and, and uh, pushed around. So it was, it was an experience. Yep. They but, break uh, you down to build you right back up again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, you were on the, uh, of course, through all the trainers, what did you start on the, the T6? Yeah, T-37. Since I had my pilot's license already, I didn't have to go through the T-41, which is a mm. Cessna 172 where they initially trained me. So I didn't have to undergo that chance to wash out. I, I walked right into the T-37. I think we had 110 hours or so in that airplane. Mm. What Air Force Base was that at? That was at Willie, Williams Air Force Base okay. in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, Unfortunately, here. it's gone, but it's a beautiful, yep. uh, it was a beautiful area to go to school. Yep. Back then, you know, that was out in the middle of nowhere. Now, kind of Phoenix yeah. is engulfed it, and it's, uh, it's one big Yeah. Tony population. and I have done plenty of touch and goes there before. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's right next door to yeah. Chandler, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I flew into Chandler. I would rent a plane on the weekends just to go fly, too. So I'd Chandler. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Canyon Municipal. Yeah. Yeah. So T-37's out of Willie. Correct. And then uh, off to T-38's at Willie. And then uh, then you get your assignment from there. And uh, I got assigned to KC-135, the A models at Plattsburgh Air Force Base in New York. And I did not know where Plattsburgh was. I was like, do they even have an Air Force Base there? <laughs> I'd never heard of it before. <laughs> but it turns out it's, it's about as far north in New York as you can get. It's very close to Montreal. Wow. But it turns out it was a great place to go. So uh, it was probably my least choice airplane, least choice of uh, geography. However, it turned out to be the greatest thing. I, I had a good time in the plane. The, uh, the place was, the location was great. I ended up meeting my wife there. So everything fell into place and it worked out real well. But uh, just by the way, the A model is the water injection model. And this will scare the heck out of you guys, but it was uh, 9,000 pounds of thrust per engine without water injection. If you threw uh, 
a couple thousand gallons of purified water into the engines, it would the density would give you an extra couple thousand pounds of thrust. I think up to like thirteen thousand pounds. But this is a three hundred thousand pound max airplane. Yeah. You're talking four engines with water running uh, at thirteen thousand pounds. So it's pretty so it climbs like a fully loaded Airbus three twenty one. Then, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, if that didn't convert you to religion, uh, one of those takeoffs didn't convert you to religion. Oh. It just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And have you ever wow. done a takeoff where you used every single foot of the runway? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you'll notice uh, every Air Force base, or at least the SAC or Strategic Air Command bases, are all 12,000 foot runways, 12 and 13,000. Yeah. And that was for a reason because they didn't want to yeah. pay for the good engines and, and uh, <laughs> make it safe for us. But hey, yeah. we're 22. We have a couple hundred hours of, of flight time. Let's give it a shot, see what happens. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. It's wow. a common theme because, you know, I've read over the years that uh, many neuropsychologists say that, the, especially in men, that the human brain is not completely formed in its development until well over the age of 24. And the part that has a hard time that takes longer to develop is that uh, that critical sense of of danger or that critical sense of yeah. repercussions. Uh, and so that's why they say men are more immature than women, because that sense of, Hey, if I do a, uh, will I get hurt or, you know, what, what will be the repercussions? And if you don't have that developed or matured until you're 24, 25 and these young soldiers, so they love you when you're 18 or 19 yeah. years old, you know, right out of high school or college. And, and because you're like, Oh uh, yeah, we could do it. Sure. <laughs> yeah. It all kind of makes sense. And more and more, uh, as I hear these stories of, of these risky operations, I think yeah. it all kind of makes sense. <laughs> Here, yeah. hold my beer. Hold my beer. Watch this. Yeah. Watch this. Yeah. I'll be back in 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm 60 and my brain still hasn't developed yet. So I'm told. So uh, Beautiful. I'm hoping any one, any one of these days. <laughs> now that means you're still young. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So you went from the A, the A model that had the water injection, and we understand that you know you have this. It's a jet engine. You have a compressed air in the turbine, yeah. and you if you inject water, water vaporizes in. Then that creates a higher was it oxygen concentration? It's density, so it, it makes it more dense. The air that's going through becomes denser because become, and so that it's kind of like uh, taken off at sea level when you're higher you have a higher density of, of air mass i see yeah or so lower, lower density. Density. a yeah. lot of smoke too you get a lot of black yeah. smoke coming out and we had to do these things called mitos minimum interval takeoffs sort of the b-52s and it's 12 second timing behind each other and so you'd have you know anywhere from three to ten planes taking off in a row with a minimum of nine seconds and a maximum of 15 seconds apart so it was it was challenging because you could not see the guy ahead of you with the black smoke from the other aircraft. Wow. Ooh. And so if you had a reject um, consideration, the call out was tanker uh, 90 knots abort. And so if you were, if your airspeed was above 90 knots, you kept, kept going. If it was below 90, you rejected also. And that was under the premise that the aircraft ahead of you, which is slightly faster, has rejected, so you need to reject as well. But you couldn't see anything; it was all it was all on fate. And have you ever so, done that uh, maneuver? No, no. I've done the I've done the mitos, but we've never had to reject, fortunately. Wow, yeah, so, that, I could see how that could go 
horrible. Terribly wrong. <laughs> One person is yeah. not on the ball. Yeah. And how did you it's how did you a, migrate from A models to E models, and what's the difference? Well, the E model was the old seven hundred seven engines from the airliners. So the guard, mm-hmm. the Air National Guard, ended up buying those engines off the Air National Guard when they got rid of them and upgraded to the R models. So. Uh, I'm sorry, with the airlines, yeah, when the airlines upgraded, mm-hmm. they sold their old engines to the Air Force and said, hey, we'll take them. And those were about 18,000 pounds of thrust each. So it was a significant increase. Mm-hmm. And so when I got out of active duty after my eight-year commitment was up, I went into the uh, Air National Guard and was able to fly the uh, E-model, which was a pretty good airplane. It, had, it actually had uh, thrust reversers on it, so it was a big improvement. Uh, oh, the yeah. models did not have thrust reversers uh-huh. or the guards. So what guard unit and what, what state? You know, I started with Ohio and I did four years there and then transferred over to uh, McGuire and I did the uh, New Jersey Air National Guard for about, uh, I want to say 18 years. Wow. So, and it was a great career. And if I had one tip to hand, a, hand off to somebody looking to, to learn how to fly and the military was interesting them. I would say go check out your local guard and reserve units. That is the absolute best way to go. You can you get the exact same training that an active duty guy gets. You don't have the commitment of uh, you know now I think it's over ten years where you have to put in ten solid years where you can't do anything else. Here you with the guard and reserve, you can get in, you can fly the world with them, and yep. along the way you're making friends from every different airline in the business because they're all part of the National Guard. So you have contacts and inroads to to the airlines and you available on no, short notice to go get an interview and get on you'll get on much quicker yeah. and uh, the other good thing about the guard and reserve is they tend to be localized so uh, the people that go to the new jersey guard live in new jersey and they are part of that guard for most of their career if not all of it so you get to get good friends uh, i guess it's a, a long way i'm trying to say I, I met yeah. some of my very best friends flying, uh, you know, both in combat and, uh, uh, you know, regular everyday yeah. flying. Yeah. Uh, through the guard. Yeah. That's one thing I remember from my guard unit was uh, pretty much what you said is there's a, there were like three generations of, uh, right. of family in, in the unit. You know, I, I worked with the son, his father worked in, you know, the, the tool crib and, you know, his father, which is the grandfather worked up in, you know, life support. And it's like, that's right, man, how many of y'all are there here? You know, <laughs> I know. and the wife works yeah. over and, you know, admin and it's like, wow, this, that's really a close, close knit community. Yeah, yeah, at least in the guardian that I was in. Yeah. Rob, which uh, unit were you in? Um, I was stationed at the 195th down in Tucson F-16 squadron there. So, wow. um, yeah, I served in uh, the guard, Arizona National Guard there, and then active duty. I was at Cannon and Luke Air Force Base working F 111s and then transitioned to the 16. Wow, that's great. Yeah. I'd yeah. like the, uh, the 111s in the plane. We had the FB 111s. Uh, yeah, I was going to say up in Plattsburgh. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that was, a, that was a great plane. I mean, it, it was my first plane, and they were retiring the airframe when I first joined. So um, I only got to experience about two years of of F one eleven life, uh, but you know the men and women that worked on the F one eleven had been around forever, and uh, so you know a lot of these these guys did all that um, since I guess since like the seventies. 
60s when the f-111 was built a lot of these guys had just been on that airframe forever so they were old school air force you know here i am the young whippersnapper walking in i mean i was i was so wet green behind the you know green face and everything and you know i'm just there to learn and they're just like oh it's gonna take us 30 years to teach you what we know yeah <laughs> he probably walked in there with 300 hours total you know and, and they're teaching you this complex jet that is multi-speed mock. yeah, yeah. Uh, well i see i was enlisted too so i, I was uh, i was uh, on the, the ramp i was turning wrenches so yeah like the old crusty uh you know staff sergeants and master sergeants were you know teaching us how to work an airplane that they've known forever so right. <laughs> and the positive aspect of that too rob is you know, it's one thing to get instruction from someone who has mastered their craft, and it's another mm-hmm. to get instruction from someone who has mastered their craft for over multiple decades and knows oh, totally. what not to waste your time on and yeah. how to do things so efficiently, so accurately, all the little yeah. tricks of the trade. Techniques and everything. That is yeah. just the most valuable thing to, to master yeah something and yeah. it was almost right. similar to like a guard unit uh the active duty 111 squadron because i mean it was the last squadron um that the air force had of f-111 so like i said all those guys have been there forever they've been working on f-111s forever a lot of them retired only working the f-111 um but that was kind of similar to what it felt like when i was in the guard unit in tucson um just you know these guys have been there with the f-16 been with the guard unit since they got 16s and um, you know, I think I remember watching uh, a senior master sergeant changing a tire on an airplane. And I'm like, you never see that active duty, you know, act, wow. active duty. If, if you were above a tech sergeant, you were, you know, managing or, you know, working an office job. And this, you know, senior master sergeant, you know, is a E or that E8 um, out there turning wrenches on his own airplane was, you know, eye opening and, you know, so I was like, wow, let me go give him a hand, see if I can learn something. Hey, if I anyway, one other, one other thought to that whole process, too. Of, uh, there's only one to two guys hired at each guard unit or pilot slot per year, typically. Right. And uh, sometimes it's not a bad idea to try and get into the unit in some other capacity, whether it's, uh, you know, as a, an, a flight deck officer or a, uh, I'm sorry, uh, like an intel officer or something like that. And then you make your contacts. And you have a better shot at one of those one or two slots the very next year or the year after. Also, you can earn your college degree that way, too. You can get paid by the military to go to school, and they'll take care of your college bill for you while you're an enlisted guy in that case. And you're still making contacts with people. You're working with the flight department. You get to know the squadron commanders. And it's a great way to get in if you're not one of those, you know, one or two people selected right away. It's kind of yeah, like Russian fraternity. Point. You got to you got to put your time in, and uh, sometimes it, yeah, it, that may be the way to go. But from my point of view, that's the absolute best way to get your flying experience. And um, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's a good point. Very, very, uh, very valid and solid. Yeah, yeah. And with the high cost of training nowadays, and I mean, what a great way to not only serve your country, uh, right. but also to you know have them help with college expenses, aviation training expenses. Um, and in the end, uh, I truly believe that the product that they will give you is always far superior 
to going the civilian route. I mean, I'm I'm a civilian pilot. I know Rob did a civilian training as well for aviation. Um, so we're trying not. We don't want to knock that. I mean, that's extremely oh, valuable. No. Uh, but yeah, if, if you have the opportunity and the inclination to serve, you have given us some some fantastic routes. I wish I really heard this <laughs> 20 years ago because I, I probably would have changed my outlook and, and the path that I took. Right. Also, as a, you don't even need a full-time guard uh, job to get your hours. They'll take you as much as you want to give them as a part-timer. So you could fly 20 days a month there to build time. And, and it's fun flying. You know, if you're in a C-117, you're traveling the world. If you're in a fighter plane, you're up there pulling G's and doing neat stuff. So I don't know. It's a great way to build your time and, and uh, get paid as well. And, and like Definitely. you mentioned, that's the great thing about a guard unit versus active uh, duty is – you know, if you live in a particular state and you go to your local guard unit and right. you get hired on at that unit, you're going to, am I, am I right in saying you're going to be at That's that correct. unit so you can be home yeah. in the evenings. You're not dealing with picking up and moving the whole family to wherever you're being, you know, based. Right. So there's, there's plenty of benefits to going the guard right. route. Yeah. Now you Definitely. said, you mentioned that uh, you were on the A model and then on the E model. What's the difference between the E model and the R model now? The R model is a big step up. That's with the uh, CFM uh, engines that we fly with the uh, Airbus. And so they have a lot more thrust and uh, a lot more capability. They're, they're, they're nice, as you know. Uh, they're actually probably not even our favorite engines anymore on the, uh, <laughs> on the Airbus. However, as a military guy, they were, they were brilliant. They, they got you up no matter what your weight was. And they were pretty clean. They didn't throw a lot of smoke out so you wouldn't be seen in the sky as easily, uh, you know, which comes in, the, comes in handy when you're in combat zones. Well, you just turned those uh, chemical tra trails on and off, right? The chemtrails? Does that switch? Yeah, that's a, did, now, did yeah, you have the toggle yeah. switch on that or did, was it the push button selector? <laughs> it was a push button. It was a push button? Yeah. And yeah. I didn't know what that was. That was one of the upgrades. Was. Yeah, that's, oh, that's one of the buttons I didn't know. Yeah, well, it's guarded. It's a dusty button. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's always in the on position, right? With a copper, <laughs> copper wire tie on it, so. Yeah. Hey, who turned that's off the right. chemtrails? Hey. <laughs> oh, crap. Yeah. Oh, that's so fantastic. I, I did get a chance to fly in five different uh, combat uh, capacities or five different uh, conflicts, I should say, mm -hmm. during my wow. time. Uh, now, the tanker is not as uh, sexy as an F-16 or an F-111. However... It's a, a necessary job, and you still get to, to be in the, uh, in the action, uh, just a little bit farther up. Yeah, and, and what can you tell us about the, that? What, what were some of the day-to-day -day missions that you would participate in? The one that I had the most combat sorties in was uh, Afghanistan. So right after 9-11, I got sent out. I was deployed before Christmas. So if it happened in September, I was probably gone late November. And we were some of the first sorties over Afghanistan. Those were long days. They were uh, 12 hour flights typically. And you'd land and you'd get your minimum 12 hours off and back up again every single day. So we flew virtually every day for the first couple months I was out there, uh, long flights. But it was pretty neat, you know, because uh, you're flying in over this country that they don't have electricity. You can't tell a city from a non, a non city out there. It's just, uh, there were so many points of light that it looked like stars. This is on the ground. And uh, 
essentially what they were were just campfires from all these different spots, but it looked like you were looking, you were upside down and looking at the stars. That's how many there were. There weren't wow. street lights, there weren't house lights, there was no electricity out there. Mm. It was just an interesting country to be uh, operating in. And um, so it was pretty neat to be a part of the very first uh, activities over there. Yeah. We, we slept in tents out in uh, the desert of Oman. It was a hot, uh, hot desert. It was 120 degrees every day, but uh, you got used to it. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. Um, yeah, you know, it, but it built a lot of camaraderie, though, right? They were they, <laughs> 20 degrees. They were good for 20 degrees. So yeah, you walk into Wait, your what? 99 degree. Oh yeah, so they yeah. Would, they would cool it off 20. They so it was like 99 tents. degrees, and you were like, "Ooh, it's chilly yeah. here." <laughs> we we had and we had cable TV in uh, Prince Sultan Air Base. Oh, wow. uh, Alcar, Saudi Arabia. That so we had air conditioning and cable TV. That was it. <laughs> wow. Your your walls were uh, basically bed sheets strung across. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, some wire. After, after a month in this, what we considered hell, us guard guys that were all airline guys, and we're like, right. oh my god, I'm sleeping in a tent and I'm eating an MRE. <laughs> this is hell. <laughs> well, after about a month, we start seeing these guys with scraggly beards coming in, and they'd just be there for a couple of days, and they'd go to the shower tent, and, and it turns out they were special forces, and that was their R and R. They were coming to our hell, and that was their R. It was their luxury right there. And there we are, coming in. Yeah, no more complaining that we had to walk down the street to go to the bathroom or take a shower. I don't have a remote control for the HBO. This is ridiculous. The Air Force sucks. I know. I'll talk to my congressman when I get home. Insert uh, military branch joke here. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Now, so now you've you, you've you've been on a few uh, deployments and, and and more than a handful of missions. When you're flying a KC-135, how many pilots do you have on a 12-hour mission? Uh, just two of us, and no, uh, two of us and one boom operator, and that was it. So three pilots on board the aircraft, complete? No, two pilots and one and one, one boom, boom operator. operator. He's the guy that flies the pole that goes into the uh, receiver aircraft right. to, to get the fuel. And, so any just other three, three people? Any other any other service members on board usually, or no? No, in operational missions, you were able to go up to I want to say twenty one or twenty four hours of crew duty days, so they were long days. I they extended so. How do you deal so, with, uh, like, if you have to have a meal or use the restroom, do you, like, get up yeah. and use the restroom and come back, or, or is that something? Yeah, that... it's just one of us, uh, you know, one of us at the, the controls at all time, and that was it. But I uh, uh, pretty much didn't sleep during the flights. So uh, you were, obviously, you were doing, you are kind of busy, actually, yeah, getting stuff ready and going through codes and whatnot. But, uh, and what's the typical say, flight uh, level for you? Uh, you know, it depended on the airplane you were going to refuel, but you'd always cruise in fairly high, like uh, 30, 29 or 30, because we were heavyweight going in there. Mm. And then if it was like an A-10, you'd have to go down low to refuel them. We used to not like flying the A-10 missions because you're only a couple thousand feet above the mountaintops there, and they can actually shoot at you and you know hit you with small arms and whatnot. And you're going slow because the A-10s go slow. And so you're yeah. kind of vulnerable down low. Mm. Um, Flaps out and everything. Yes, going 200 knots, trying to refuel them. Yeah. So we couldn't wait to get out of those. The AWACS were probably the best missions because they took a lot of gas in one connection. Um, AWACS were the you were going home early. with the dish. Yeah, that's always a good thing, too. 
<laughs> Speaking of bathroom breaks, one of the few times we ever got shot at in my my short uh, career there doing that stuff was uh, uh, I had gotten up to go to the bathroom just before the refueling track. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, I'm in the, the tiny little bathroom that we have in the 135 trying to go to the bathroom and the plane starts banking up multiple directions and i'm thinking oh these idiots are trying to make me you know pee on my shoes oh, i'll give them hell when i get back out there it turns out they're actually going around uh some chafe and uh, uh explosions that were going on <laughs> so i had this brand new young second lieutenant you know he's flying this plane going all around trying to avoid uh, getting shot at and you know i thought i thought they were trying to play a joke on me but uh so my, my first time in combat, I was in a bathroom. Was, uh, it's not the most glam. I don't think they'll make a movie about that one. But if they do. Well, you you definitely won't hear those kind of stories at a, at a part 121 airline. <laughs> although, awesome. although I did have a, a, a captain uh, over at Sandpiper that used to like to play a joke. Nowhere near as exciting is what you just told us but we had the walk of shame as as we talked about a few times that the yep. only lavatory on this 50 passenger jet was in the back of the aircraft so if you had to go use the restroom you had to take the walk of shame so the flight attendant would come into the flight deck and you would go and walk past every single passenger hello, hello, and you went to the back of the airplane and you used the laugh and on your way back Everybody, oh, the pilot had to use the restroom, you know, so then you'd have to swap out. Well, we had a captain that knew exactly where the circuit breaker was for the lavatory light. So he would have the flight attendant look through the peephole and she would or he would say, yeah, yeah, he's in the bathroom. And he'd go, OK, great. And he'd wait like three alligator, one, two three pull the breaker so you there you are midstream <laughs> oh crap <laughs> it went jet black dark back there and you're like son of a <laughs> and so wow. and then the light would come on and then go off and come on and go off and you get back to the cockpit and you know you're like thanks a lot asshole <laughs> nice do you ever get trapped that back there tony where you know they yeah hey, yeah it's open come on out you know so we swap places they come in you go out and as soon as you start walking out there, another passenger gets out and you get, they go in the bathroom. You're like, oh, so now you're sitting there in the middle of the aisle. You're like, yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm next. Yep. <laughs> and you're facing them because everybody's facing forward and you're facing them. And you're like, yeah, especially on, there. on a full That's, flight. There's nowhere to sit. Yeah. Um, there's Springfield out there, Lake Michigan. <laughs> God, I wish I hadn't eaten that pasty in Phoenix. I didn't have to go right <laughs> exactly. now. <laughs> uh, uh, come on well, hurry up pitch it off already now we were talking about like mastering your profession well there are techniques that we used to really love when flight attendants would would do um one was because it's a security issue you know you're you're not expediting your biological need and you're putting yourself at risk when you're out there on a, on a small regional jet where you'll don't have a lab in first class and you have to go to the back of the airplane. So what I really enjoyed was when the flight attendant would go, okay, stand by and they would go to the back. They would make sure no one was in the lab and they would lock it. And then they'd come up to the, the main galley and then they'd open up the partition door that for the closet and they would use it like a partition between the galley and the flight deck door, the cockpit door. 
And then when they would come into the cockpit to relieve you, they'd say, okay, the bathroom's empty, it's locked, and I put the door there. That way, when the exchange is happening, there was a barrier there, which was fantastic. And those were security-conscious flight attendants. I always gave them a kudos for that. I made sure I documented it because that is how we should be doing business 24-7, especially now in this day and age with all these disturbances. People are – they're just – losing their minds i think it's i think it's the the mask that creates the hysteria but hysteria yeah you know so and then there were those that they're like oh you need the bathroom okay i'm ready and you'd go back there and like you said rob you'd walk back there and as soon as a passenger sees the pilot coming out of the flight deck everybody knows what's happening come on if you've been on a flight this past (laughs) decade you know exactly what's happening and they go oh i better get in there before the pilot does you know, and then you're sitting there waiting, and it's like, is this person like taking a dump? What's going on? It's been in there a long time. You know, you knock on the door. You're gonna be much longer. I gotta fly the airplane. <laughs> so yeah, um, these little techniques, and and there's there's nothing wrong with uh, briefing your flight attendant before the flight, or asking the captain to brief the flight attendant before the flight in the event that we do this lab break. Please lock the. Make sure there's nobody in there. Lock the door. Come up to the front. Let me know that you've done that. And then, because you can unlock the door from the outside. I'm sorry, Rob. You were saying? Oh uh, no, <laughs> I, I was gonna um, say there was a there was also one situation that uh, we were cruising along at you know whatever somewhere over Central America. I mean, uh, Central United States, not Central America, Central United States. <laughs> and <laughs> and and uh, remember on the 145, there was a second um, uh, cabin phone behind yes. us. Mm-hmm. Uh, not behind us, but all the way on the, the the wall in the back of the cabin. So we're cruising along, and I hear a chime. You know the 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 uh, intercom chime. So I pick up the phone. Hey, it's Captain Rob. And I hear this voice. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a male voice, which we had a male flight attendant too, but a male voice uh, on the other end says, "Hey, where are we?" And I'm like, "Ah, uh, let's see. We're over uh, uh, Columbia, Missouri. Oh, okay. Uh, how high are we?" I'm like, "Uh." we're 37,000 feet, you know, I'm like, then they go, well, how fast are we going? Ah, we're going, you know, 0.78. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, uh, how much longer, you know? And they're like, I'm like, Oh, we got about another hour and a half. And they're like, thanks to hang up the phone. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what was that all about? You know? And, and then the, then the flight attendant calls me and they had a totally different voice. <laughs> so I'm oh, like, wow. Hey, did you just call me? They're like, no, but the, the passenger picked up the phone in the back, saw that it says, you know, pilot on it. So they hit the button oh. and they just started talking. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, so I'm just talking to some random passenger back there. <laughs> anyway, that's going down a wormhole on the podcast here, oh, but here we are. No, that's fan- that's a fantastic story. And <laughs> that's I think, a good story. I, I think you did tell me that one time because I do remember that. Um, oh, my God. Yeah so, yeah, so ladies and gentlemen, do not pick up the intercom. You're not – you have not been checked out on that equipment. Yeah. Yeah, you can't call collect anywhere either, so. <laughs> yeah. Now, Pete, you know, you've talked about your deployments. You talked about 9-11. We, anyone that's been following the show now for a while um, has heard you speak on what you were doing on that day sitting in the bread – bed van and you know having having a buddy bring you some underwear and eating mres for a few days while you're waiting to get released and 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 actually having to deal with strikes and nuclear strike um drill not drills but actual activation um for a split moment there and thankfully 
uh, nothing came of that too serious. But uh, since that moment in your career, moving forward, have there been other instances that were just as stressful? Uh, good question. Um, you know, the, the first time you do a combat sorties were, were, you know, a little bit nerve wracking because you don't want to screw it up. You got a lot of codes and, you know, different words that mean different things. Uh, and you got to make sure you're saying the right things. Um, one of the coolest missions I had, there was some stress involved, but it worked out really well. Uh, I got to work uh, uh, a top secret mission in conjunction with the Space Shuttle Columbia on STS-28, which is a military mission. And uh, we did some very things that were done for the first time ever uh, between spacecraft and aircraft. And it was really pretty cool stuff. I look back now again, thank God I was, uh, my, apparently my brain still hadn't developed at that point because <laughs> it was really dangerous stuff. Wow. We're flying that tanker formation. Uh, at 45,000 feet, which was the actual max ceiling of the uh, aircraft. And it is really hard. Your your window of being too slow and too fast is just a couple of knots. And when you try and do a you know a lead change or, or stay in formation with another aircraft, it's difficult. Yeah. Um, but we did that for, it was a nine-hour mission. It's really cool. So uh, we got to debrief with the astronauts afterwards. And, um when they got back down, but it was, it was a pretty neat mission. Yeah. And we, what well, we, for those listeners that don't uh, know the term or are unfamiliar, we, uh, in the industry, we call that the coffin corner. Uh, so when, when an right. airplane, a jet aircraft reaches its maximum service ceiling, max operating altitude, um, there is a speed at which if you go any faster, you could actually stall the airplane. And if you go any slower, you can stall the airplane. And when that window, as the, as the higher uh, elevations you get up there and the aircraft gets up there and finally levels off because it doesn't have much performance, you get into this very tight window of safe airspeed. And any Lock kind of crit. critical, yeah, yeah the, the space between a critical mop and stall speed. So um, when you get in this little coffin corner, they call it that because faster or slower, <laughs> you'll be in a coffin, right? You're going to stall. You're going to stall. And it's very, very, very difficult to recover. You have to descend and lose a lot of altitude before the airplane um, has the characteristics in order and the performance to come out of it. We actually practice this on uh, recurrent training now over at Legacy Airlines. And we call that um, high elevation or high altitude stall recovery techniques. Um, the FAA has uh, changes the required maneuvers now and again every few years, and that was one of the more recent changes uh, because of recent events that happened around the world with stalling an aircraft at altitude because of that very narrow band of safe airspeed. Now we're going to take a break, but we'll be right back with Captain Pete Linder. Roger. Huh? LA departure frequency 123.9er. Roger. Huh? Request vector over. Huh? 
Flight 209 are clear for Vector 324. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our Vector, Victor? And ladies and gentlemen, we're back. Now, Pete, um, did you need to use the restroom at all or anything? You're good? Uh, so you're going to make a flight attendant come in here and uh, take my place? Yeah, we're going to do the swap. And... <laughs> yeah. I know where the I circuit breaker is. Walk of shame. It's right yeah. here. <laughs> That's right. Go ahead. I locked the bathroom door. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> You know, fast forwarding to my uh, very first flight as a flight engineer at an airlines back in 1992. Uh, I'm sitting up there and apparently the captain and the flight attendants had made a plan uh, ahead of time. And uh, the flight attendants made an announcement. This is the flight engineer's first flight ever. We're going to give each one of you a pillow. This was this shows you how this dates me because everybody got pillows back in that day. Yeah, <laughs> that's a long time ago. But they, everybody had a pillow, and whoever could knock the hat off of the flight engineer was going to get a bottle of champagne. So sure enough, <laughs> ding ding, you know, the flight attendant calls up and says, "Hey, there's this flap sound, this windy sounding noise coming from the uh, aft stair uh, on the." 727 can somebody come back and check it out and the captain looks at me and goes why don't you go back and check it out but make sure you put your hat on you know and so <laughs> back i go in. i notice everybody's smiling at me because they're all facing me as i walk down the aisle and they're all facing me and smiling i'm looking wow that's interesting hello 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 and then all of a sudden i hear now and boom the, the place was filled with pillows and i actually fell down i got hit by so many pillows <laughs> And it uh, turns out a little kid, a 10-year-old, got the hat. So uh, they gave his parents the bottle of champagne. Wow. That, that's that fantastic. Was cool. that's good that was stuff. when aviation was fun. That's so, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Good oh, story. Thank you for sharing that. Now, we've been talking with Captain Pete Lindner about his fantastic journey in aviation through the U.S. Air Force. But... We also want to talk about how you got your start in the civilian aviation industry or the airline industry. So, you know, you talked about making all these connections in the guard, you know, the people that you were working alongside as part-time service that you were doing, what was it like two weekends a month or something like that at that point? Yeah, I actually hadn't got the guard job yet then, so I was just active duty and then mm -hmm. got out. It, back then, it was hard to get a guard job because we just finished with uh, Gulf War One, and uh, so people were, they were full already, and they just didn't have many slots. So that took a few years. I probably didn't get into the guard until 94. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I was on that for two years. I'm sorry, yeah. So that last, like, and we, we kind of have learn, been learning this um, in the course of a few of the interviews that we've done with a, a few of our previous guests where they talk about that one-year transition. A year before your active duty assignment is set to expire, most aviators will start looking at civilian jobs or, or what they're going to do next. And they've got about a year where they're really focusing on getting out applications and, and having that next step. And some of these groups have been formed to help uh, service members get a job in the civilian ranks. Were you able to participate in any of those organizations? You know, good question. I know because my departure from the Air Force came pretty quick. So what happened was I owed two more years because I upgraded to instructor. And um, I was waiting for my next assignment to come when 
the military decided to allow early outs. So I really, on a Friday, I found out about early outs. And then the following Monday, I put in for it. And three months later, I was on the uh, streets. So I did not have resumes done. I did not have, I did have my ATP, which I'm fortunate I've gotten. Uh, Another interesting note you'll probably laugh at in today's world, but uh, I got out with less than 2,000 hours, even though I was an instructor pilot in training flight, which there's only four heavies in training on heavies. (laughs) And they just didn't fly. Our our whole mission yeah. as strategic air command was to sit nuclear alert, and that's what we did. Yeah. And we got maybe two, two, three or four hour flights a month, and that was it. So there was very little wow. flying to be had. So I got out with totally, really seventeen hundred hours, seventeen hundred fifty military hours, and uh, by that point maybe a hundred and something civilian hours. Wow. So wow. I guess I was lucky to have a job, but that was that type of qualifications was good enough for the airlines back then. They would take you with less than 2,000 hours uh, as long as you were military, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big player. But and so you applied nowadays, at what we call here on the show Legacy Airlines. Was that yes. the only airline that you applied to? or No, I put out everything to everybody from uh, commuter airlines to uh, all the majors and uh, pretty much didn't get any phone calls at all. It was uh, I only got one phone call, and that was at uh, Legacy Airline. And... Uh, I did get a couple phone calls from uh, a commercial or uh, the, the private jet, Learjets uh, and Gulfstream companies, uh, two, two of those called. I actually got three job offers on one day. One was from Legacy Airlines, and then I got one from Apple Computer and one from uh, another Gulfstream operator up in oh, hmm. the Bay Area. So uh, I took the Legacy Airline, and here I am today. But um, the career wasn't as smooth as uh, it didn't take off smoothly. Let's put it that way. I had uh, two years on station before they started furloughing, and my number was called. So I yeah. went back out on the street for a couple of years. I was fortunate enough to get picked up by um, uh, a major cargo company, and I flew a night freight for three years. And I flew seven fives and seven fours there as an engineer on the seven four. Yeah, and, and we called this uh, this freight company uh, Brown Box Air Cargo. Correct. Yeah. Brown box air cargo. And what was so, that like? I mean, it, a lot of people want to go fly for that cargo outfit. It's one of the yes. most well-respected. Um, and you got to fly flight engineer on some major heavy stuff, heavy equipment. Was right. it was it really just a completely different bag, or is it just that much better, or it's just different? Good. Those are tough questions to answer. For one thing, at the time that I got hired – the top captain, I want to say, was making $96 an hour. So they had not broken through with their big pay that they are today, and they are outstanding today. Uh, so we weren't paid the best, and it was uh, uh, it was tough flying. It was uh, all night long. They do have some day flying, quote-unquote, which is like 4 p.m. to midnight. And uh, so you get more senior, you can hold that. That's uh, probably the way to go if, if you didn't like the all-night stuff. But you would be gone. Typically, uh, they would do week on, week off, or two weeks on, two weeks off, and they'd do that for your circadian rhythm. So once they could get you into that night shift, they wanted to keep you there. So the plus side of that was you, if you commuted in, you only had to do one commute a month. However, the, the bad side, at the time I had little kids, you were gone from their lives for two solid weeks. So you missed parent-teacher conferences and piano lessons and everything of everyday life. And you were kind of a stranger when you came back and you were on a different time zone on your body. And it took a little while to get comfortable with that. And 
again, if I had never, if that was the first company that had hired me, I'd be there to this day and been very happy. But uh, having got to work with the people in the passenger industry, and it was a very tough decision. It came down to the very, very last night of whether I quit one company or quit the other. And I made a tough call to, to come back to uh, Legacy. And then, uh, but I continued on. In total, I did a total of seven years on the, uh, the B scale. And if you guys are not familiar with that, uh, back in the early or mid 80s, they decided to not pay the pilots very much. Uh, the people that were already on board got the high pay, and the people that were coming on board forever after for the next several years were going to get very low pay. And by low pay, I mean, you know, maybe $18,000 a year to start. By my fifth year, I was probably making mid thirties. And then it wasn't until my seventh year that I finally got into decent pay. So today we've come a long way. And now our second year guys get what I made as a captain in my 20th year on the super right. eight. I was making 167 an hour. And that's what uh, a second year pilot makes at a, at a wow. legacy carrier. So yeah. we've come a long way, but it was not, pretty in the beginning and it took me 20 years to make captain i was the most junior captain for one month at this airline and that was in my right. 20th year because i was hired at the very end of the uh, the hiring uh boom that had started in the early 80s and went to the 90s uh with that said i have to say i can't complain uh, financially we're doing very well so it is a very good choice in career and i think people such as yourselves who are younger and going to really soar with your seniority you guys are going to do really well, especially the new new guys coming in today. It's an exciting field to be in. Yeah, and I just recently read this morning, uh, intercompany mail at, over here at Legacy Airlines that they plan on was it twenty one hundred pilots they want to hire in the year twenty twenty two. Twenty one hundred. Wow, that's a that's uh, that's astronomical. The training yeah, department, I don't even know how they're going to be able to keep up. I know they're putting in two brand new simulators for the uh, A320neo sims. Um, they're making room. They've, they've built entire buildings, simulator bays, uh, for the new simulators over there at their headquarters. Uh, it's going to be an amazing feat if they pull it off to be able yeah. to not only keep up with all the recurrent training that's required and bring on... 2100 new hire pilots and so yeah like you said it's a very cyclical industry a couple of years ago uh you know we were growing but now it just seems like we're making up for lost time in our growth right in our growth potential you think about it if you were to get hired tomorrow in the beginning of this growth you could end up being almost a captain within a year you know or very close to captain because right now 2,000 from the bottom is making the bottom end of the captain's list. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's a pretty amazing thought. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you're willing and you put in your time. And like you said, you know, you had a very difficult road of low pay, a lot of time in the right seat, um, furlough, you know, going back and forth, having to make decisions to go between one carrier to another and you had patience and resolve. And because of that, you now have put yourself in an, op uh, an opportunity to be in a, in a good position. And I think right. early on, I, I met a lot of people that would jump ship really quick because they felt like the grass is greener on the other side of the fence and the neighbor's yard was, was way better. So even, even on the regional level, they would 
work for a year at a regional and they go, ah, oh, this sucks. I'm not upgrading. I'm not moving. This, they, they fed me a bunch of lies when I got hired. I'm, I'm out of here. And they go to the next regional and they'd start all over again in seniority. And then after a year or two, they're like, oh, well, you know, they're not delivering on their prompt. And so they're doing this like job skipping. And after the course of a decade, they look at their friends at their first regional who have all upgraded. They've made to captain. And now they, some of them even had some float through opportunity or whatever. And meanwhile, they're still slinging gear for for their captains at the bottom of the seniority list somewhere. And most of the time they'll go, oh, it's great here. I love it. Realizing that it was, you know, right. not the best career choices. And a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. You never know when one seniority number can make the world a difference. There's truth to that, but I think it's the people that make the best decisions, have the patience and the resolve and kind of see it through and they water their own grass. And yeah. in the end, at the tail right. end of their careers, they're the ones that are the happiest, the most successful and have the better lifestyle. Yes. You know, every airline yep. gets its day on top too. So, you know, when I first started That's at right. Legacy, we were the number one airline in the world. It was pretty cool. And, and I think it's changed hands a few times. So if you just wait around long enough, you'll you'll be once again part of the best yeah. best in the industry. But it is pretty exciting. So you spent to be there. twenty years back and forth yes. before you upgraded. Right. And you know what? The the bright side of that or the good side of that is I got to observe captains both good and bad for 20 years so it gave me a lot of uh, uh, tools in the bag that I could use uh, you know when I'm flying with a difficult guy like Tony here you know I know how to handle him now and you gotta watch him too yeah you gotta watch him like a before hawk. start checklist um, stop rushing me damn it yeah <laughs> it's not 10 prior yet always I don't run checklist until we're on the clock drop that break now <laughs> <laughs> Oh but yeah, you do get to see yeah, the good like and the bad. bad. Yeah, so. and and it's true, and that's absolutely true. I've said that many times. Um, you know, you have to just kind of keep your mouth shut and and be that chameleon sometimes, and observe, and and take special note because you learn from the good and you learn from the bad. You learn oh, yes. how not to be, the mistakes, and how just always have that in the back of your mind. How maybe I'm going to do it better when I'm in that seat. Um, and yeah, I've been taking notes. I got, I got like five pages on this <laughs> Lindner guy right here. Yeah. 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 You're nobody unless you got your employee number carved on the back of the stall door in the bathroom. <laughs> you remember that. Yeah. Yeah. We used to have over at Sandpiper, uh, the, the Embraer yolk. logo was on the yolk. yolk and it was just a plastic cap that popped on and off with a clip. And every single pre-flight, what did you do? Yep. The FO will pull his cap off or her cap off and look at it and read the back of it. <laughs> and, you know, I, I can only imagine what they say now. Yeah, <laughs> but oh, I know. You know, there was always like one or two pilot <laughs> names. Pictures that were, or yeah, some hieroglyphics on there. Yeah, that's, that's where they used to hide all the, all the good porn was uh, underneath yep. the uh, caps. Of the, <laughs> and then the company was like, stop putting porn. You know, you've offended some pilots and... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Times have changed, like you said. Yeah. Now, uh, so you, you you marched on and 
did your service. You did your time. When did you retire from the uh, guard? 2012. 2012, okay. I was done. And you upgraded the captain when? Uh, 2011, I want to say. So I just made captain on the Super 80. And I uh, was uh, flying that pretty much on reserve for legacy in mm-hmm. the background. And was this always, and, uh, what base was this on the 80? Uh, New York. So I, I, here's what happened. Kind of a funny story, if, if you want to call it that. Uh, so when I come back from furlough in 1997, I put down every single airplane I could as captain on my bid sheet. So I had 747 captain, MV-11 captain, DC-10 captain. Uh, you know, every plane you could imagine I had on there, including at the very bottom, Super 80 Captain New York. And uh, I'm signing in for a 757 flight going to Caracas one night. And, you know, I pull up my email on the computer. And it's like, congratulations. You, what? Super 80 New York. <laughs> what was I doing? What was I thinking? Somebody get a Should drug test that one out. now. <laughs> There's a lesson here. Always yep. know what your bid preferences are, and if you don't, you know, remember what they are because right. you put them in there a year ago, go in, update, remove, delete, because yep. the one yeah. that you don't want is the one you're going to get guaranteed. Gonna get. Well, <laughs> yep. if I could preface that story, nothing had been moving. This was back in 2009 or 10 when the, the markets were hitting a, a lull. They weren't flying much, pastures yeah. uh, wise and we had just switched over to age 65. So we had a glut of guys staying another five years. So we were going to get no movement for five years. And I, I never, never dawned on me that they were going to pick new captains. And sure enough, I got it. But yeah. they, uh, pay attention. <laughs> but you know uh, what? Sounds- I did it. It's one of those things. Yeah. I'm glad I got yeah. to do it. Yeah. I did that too. I, I, uh, I upgraded yeah. first chance I got and I was in New York. Yeah. Yep. Me too. And probably, thing, as a matter of fact, I think I upgraded the same time you did. Yeah, I think you were in the uh, two or three, or maybe even four classes yeah. ahead of me. It was it was not long, well, like six it, months. Yeah, well, I'm saying Pete when Pete upgraded in 2011. That's that's when I upgraded, uh, and I wow. got New York too. Well, obviously it was at at a, uh, obviously it was at Sandpiper, but um, <laughs> yeah, it was on a plane that you had flown though. It was on a plane that you had flown. It was so yeah, so it was an easy upgrade, but I, I couldn't imagine. You know, having to upgrade on a completely different airframe, learning, you know, having to go through the whole ground school and, yeah. you know, simulator and learning a whole new flows and and the stress of just, you know, going through the upgrade. You know, that's a that's a Jeopardy event right there. Yeah. yeah. You're you not only learning the seat, you're also learning the airplane. And it's definitely yeah. a bigger yeah. fire hose for sure. Yeah. Now, Pete, what year did you you didn't pay attention the whole time? The previous 20 years. (laughs) I know. I know. Rob. (laughs) Rob. So, Pete, uh, I wanted to ask you what year did you uh, transfer over to the 320 and what made you go to that? Was it the part? Yeah, it was uh, late 2013. So, I was one of the first guys to get on the Airbus. And the reason I did that, my parents were elderly and they still lived in the Bay Area in San Fran. And they were going to deploy the 320 with T models out of New York, and it was going to be exclusively for San Francisco and LA. Mm. So it turned out to be a great deal. I jumped on it and got it right away. Uh, at first, I thought I was in living hell, you know, with trying to learn Airbus speak after flying 
you know, 707, 72, 74, 5, and 6. So I was a Boeing guy with a Boeing background. All of a sudden, I'm, you know, living the Airbus lingo, which I've come to really appreciate that airplane, though, and actually really like it, probably more than anything I've flown. But in um, any case, uh, so it was mostly the opportunity to fly a brand-new, exciting, neat airplane and also go to the places I wanted to go to. Cool. Yeah, and... You've been on the airplane now quite some time. What is the thing you like the most about that airplane? Mm. The tray is pretty cool. You got to admit, <laughs> you can eat your food. You're not spilling all over the place. Uh, yeah. Prop things up on it. Uh, no, I, I think it's kind of like the ease of landing that airplane. Mm. I was never a ticket out type of guy on crosswinds. I think crosswinds can be some of our most challenging landings uh, in jet planes. I always used to set it up at 200 feet with the wing low and the, and you know the the yaw in there to to land on the one tire. But uh, in the Airbus, they teach you to bring it down to 10 feet, pull it to idle, and then kick out the the uh, the crab. And that took me a little while to get that concept down. But once you do, it's like really easy. I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, as long as you remember to increase back pressure when you kick it out. Otherwise, the nose says, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to touch down now. And what's the one thing you dislike about the Airbus? I think the FMS could be better. There's uh, certain things about uh, when it wants to start down or and when you're flying like the approaches into, say, San Francisco or Los Angeles that have a lot of step-down fixes, it likes to dive down level off dive down level off. so in the back you're getting the the forward yeah. back motion quite a bit every couple of miles and mm. 757 other fms's make it a nice easy general descent to constant descent all the way down yeah the other thing i miss deeply is the uh the green arc on some aircraft that would show you where you're going to descend at where you're going to be when you get to the bottom of that descent so you can tell that you're going to make a uh, restriction really easily visually the airbus yeah. you gotta think about it look at it interpret the colors of the arrows and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. now you was uh the 7576 your favorite civilian boeing aircraft or mm, that's a great question too um probably it was i think that that plane i had the most time in it maybe eight or nine thousand dollars so it was a it was really comfortable um but I did like the old 707, too. It was hard to make a bad landing in that plane. You just kept pulling back on the yoke until the wheels touched down. So if you flared high, it was no big deal. It wouldn't oh, really? it wouldn't come crashing down like some planes, and I don't know why. Yeah. And you were not going to drag the tail because it was short. Yeah. So Now, with your extensive experience, both military and civilian, I've got to ask you this question. Boeing or Airbus? probably going to say airbus yeah and i know that's that's heretic talking <laughs> yeah. it is yeah. i know i know but i've really come to appreciate the uh the the comfort in the in the uh, airbus it's a very comfortable plane it's you're not all over the place turning fuel switches on and off and balancing mm. things and doing things it's just automatic now i imagine maybe the seven eight and triple seven they might incorporate a lot of the new magic today. Yeah. So without speaking to those two planes, because I've never flown them, um, they may be right up there. 
I'm hoping someday. Yeah. Now you've had a, just a wonderful journey and I, and I just want to say thank you both for sharing it with us today and thank you both of you gentlemen for your service. I, I would be remiss if I, if I didn't mention that. Thanks. It's, it's our honor. It's, uh, I feel honored to be able to do that. So thank Thanks, you, Tony. Now your journey you found yourself on, has it turned out the way you imagined it would? You know, it really has. I, Honestly, I just wanted to fly an airplane, and it is the best job in the world because it incorporates, you have to think, you have to have coordination and hand-eye, so you get to do things physically as well as challenge yourself mentally. You're constantly learning. I can't think of a better job. Uh, maybe second baseman for the, the Yankees would be a better job, but uh, other than that, which is hard to get, uh, I can't think of a better job for me personally. So, yes, it has turned out. I've gotten to do what I want to do. The money is really nice, and uh, I get to see the world. And whether it's Tulsa or Paris, you get to see really cool places. Yeah, and you can have a good time just about anywhere you are. Yeah, it, very true. Speaking of good times, anywhere you are, do you have a favorite layover and or favorite layover event? Yeah. You know, lately it's been Hawaii. I love doing the Hawaii flights, but that's the aircraft I'm on. But I do miss parts of Europe. Uh, I miss London. I miss. Uh, I do miss uh, deep America. Was deep South America was fun too. Buenos Aires, great food. I guess it's turning into all about the food with me now. <laughs> so food events are major. If you can get a great steak yeah. and a you know nice glass of wine for under ten bucks, and uh, yeah. Argentina, say that's pretty cool. That is. And, uh, and like I say, you can enjoy anywhere, whether it's you know Omaha or uh, you know Switzerland. And it's always good, good things to do. And when you get to fly with great people like we see in our airline, you know, it's it's nice. Yeah. It's better. Yeah. I, I second that. Uh, the people you fly with make all the difference in the world. Now, everyone has obstacles along their journey. And we, there are challenges that we have to overcome, circumnavigate. Uh, sometimes it can be economic. Sometimes it can be personal. Sometimes it can just be the luck of the draw. What has been the biggest obstacle on your journey? I would say probably bad timing, you know, and getting into the scene late. Although I'm rather to get, I'd rather get into it at the tail end than not get into it at all. And uh, so my seniority, for example, uh, interesting story. I ran into a guy in Maui about three weeks ago, and he was flying his very last flight. He's on a triple seven, flying from Dallas, and he brought his whole family in there, and this was going to be his last two legs. And uh, he, he told me a funny story. He goes, yeah, when I got on, on with this airline all those years ago, my seniority number was 3,800. I go, gosh, I won't get to that number until next year, <laughs> in my 31st <laughs> year. <laughs> so I started way back. So my timing was probably my biggest obstacle. I got on at 11,000 seniority. Mm -hmm. And wow. uh, here I am today in the 3,900 range. Yeah. And I'm hoping to make it to the uh, wide body range at some point. I've got uh, five years left to go, God willing, and uh, get to do that. Wow. So is that your goal here uh, for the future is uh, some wide body flying? I think so. If I also may put an interesting thought out to the uh, when I flew for the cargo company, they have a different way of paying their, their pilots. So all pilots get paid the same. All captains make 380 bucks an hour. All FOs make 290 an hour. 
And uh, the beauty in that is you get to fly what you want to fly. So as I become an old man and don't want to fly 14 hours all night to Australia, I transition to the Airbus. I fly day Hawaii trips and, and I'm happy. I'm making this. I'm not giving up money to do that. And some young guy who, you know, hey, let's go see Australia. Let's go do New Zealand and let's fly the 787. He gets that opportunity and he doesn't lose money. Right. And so it works out. It's kind of a win-win situation. I, I wish we would adopt that here at uh, Legacy Carrier. And uh, the company saves a lot of money on training that way, too. Yeah. They don't have to constantly trade 10 people for every guy that retires at the top. Yeah, very true. But, yeah, and there's a couple issues. I mean, we're Legacy Airlines is under uh, contract negotiations, has been for years now. Um, there, there are a couple great ideas on how to make things better. We've talked about paid vacation or uh, premium pay during vacation days. That way people don't call in sick and all these right. multiple ideas. I, I did not know about the cargo operations uh, pay structure. That does sound like it would really help. You know, you're getting paid for your years of service as a pilot, not years of service plus right. your seat plus what equipment you're on plus if you're international or you're domestic and there's so many variables it's the most convoluted thing there's a popular photo floating around often used for a meme where there's a college professor in a lecture hall with this two-story chalkboard and it's got this mathematical equation that's filling up the entire chalkboard and my favorite meme is the one going me trying to explain my schedule to non-pilots <laughs> 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 and unfortunately it is it is that convoluted um yeah so but thank you um now sitting side saddle on a 747 yeah that was neat yeah it's it's like watching it it's, you got a huge uh panel that you're working so it was that was a pretty special plane i got to say and one of my favorite uh, milk runs was the hawaii to uh, louisville run which they would fill it up with pineapples and so I could walk down there on my break. I'd walk through the whole cargo compartment, and it's probably the best smell in the world. It smelled like <laughs> it was it was heaven. It smelled like a giant pineapple. Wow! But uh, yeah, cool. Now I I've got to admit, uh, one of the things I wanted to have in my collection of memories before I died was to be able to sit in the cockpit of a seven forty seven. The reason for that is my very first experience in flying was at a very young age, I flew from Toronto, Canada to Italy on a 747. Wow. And it was the first time I got to go up to the flight deck. I was very, I think I was five or six years old, if that. I was very young. I don't remember the, the visual memory of it, but I remember that it happened. I remembered you know, having that flight, I remember the experience of being on the flight deck and having a couple of people ask, help the pilots ask me some questions and whatnot. Uh, yeah. do, you, you know. do you like gladiator movies? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that really, it was huge for me. And the fact that there was the, the two levels and the spiral staircase, and there was a grand a baby grand piano, uh, in, in their lounge that oh, yeah. they, they let me wow. see it because the flight attendant took my hand and gave me a little tour. And I remember those little details. And I always said to myself, one of these days, I'm going to pilot one of these things. Well, that opportunity, unfortunately, will never be. But on one of their very last flights for United, I was able to get on a jump seat 
on my commute home to Los Angeles from Chicago on a United 747. And so there I was in the jump seat and the the gate agent came up and said, well, we have so many people on board. There's plenty of seats in first if you want to take it. And I looked at the captain. I'm like, is it okay if I just sit up here? I'll be quiet. Captain's like, yeah, sure. No problem. And I got to sit there. And what astonished me was on takeoff roll with both pilots on their hands on the thrust levers, bringing all four of those thrust levers up to the takeoff position. And it feels like you're not even moving because you're so high up. And you couldn't hear an engine at all. It was so quiet. And as it rotated, it felt like you're taking off in a Cessna 172. It just popped off the ground and climbed like, like nothing. So the fact nice. that you got to you got to sit in that airplane and work as a flight engineer, work the controls, and 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 be there as a, for a living, oh, my hat's off to you. Sir. That's cool. It was pretty neat. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty high up when you taxi out too. I I think it'd be scary to actually taxi that thing because it's very narrow uh, taxiways, as you know. <coughs> Excuse me, I get choked up when I talk about taxiing. But, uh, <laughs> No, it's uh, narrow taxiways, and, and they've got all those gear, you know, the center Yeah, gear center and, body steering and all that stuff. Yeah, it's it's really a neat airplane. You know, yeah. another cool aspect in my career, I've gotten to see the 70, 72, 74, 5, and 6. And I've kind of seen Boeing graduate uh, systems-wise amongst yeah. over the years, you know, and developing different hydraulic systems that kind of incorporate the best of all worlds. Each time it kind of upgraded a little bit better. It's yeah. Neat to see. Yeah. Now that you're know, using fly-by-wire systems and everything like that too, the seventy right. Max aircraft, stuff like that. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah. All right. So, Pete. What? No, go ahead. What What has been your uh, funniest layover story? What's one that sticks out in your your memory of twenty years? You know, uh, twenty years at the at legacy is that right yeah 30 30 years legacy. 30 years wow that's right we had the lost 10 years in there too so 30 years <laughs> what's been your yeah. funniest layover have you had one that just gave you a belly laugh when you were there and that you can talk about actually yeah, talk yeah, about right i'll give you the pg uh, version don't, yeah, don't <laughs> disclose anything that's, yeah. that's gonna get you in trouble yeah, yeah that's right uh, actually, one of the funniest times I was on a seven-five layover, and uh, the captain and I rented a car, and we hit some beaches uh, outside of LA, and they were kind of secluded area, and we're just kind of walking around. We had a, a couple of cold uh, beverages with us, and we turned the corner, and there was a uh, maybe three or four cameras, some lights, some of those reflective. Uh, um, uh, panels that they use in filming and we walked onto a, a set of a porno scene going on in full full action and we we're looking at each other like holy shit and everybody's looking at us even the people in the act are looked over and we looked at them <laughs> I, we posted a material we backed out <laughs> we went the other direction but it was kind of funny i didn't expect to see that at work today wow <laughs> yeah those are That's one of the awesome. stories that you just you can't really go home and say, "Oh, what happened to your day at work, honey?" <laughs> nah, nothing. Nothing. It's just boring. Well, That's she's gonna funny. know now. <laughs> yeah, she's gonna know. Now. Ah. 
<laughs> now you wow. have you mentioned you have children. You have what three children? Three kids, yes. Yeah, and on, on all are all three in aviation. No, none of them are. They, their IQs were way too high. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they learned, they, they, yes. So we have. Uh, I have uh, one. My oldest is a nurse in the Navy. My uh, middle child is a doctor in the Air Force, and my youngest child is uh, Army Special Forces. And he just got back from a, a tour behind the lines. So we're happy to see him back. Yes, and and congratulations. Wow. I, I really yeah. was honored that you shared Thanks. that with me earlier in the week. Um, what a fantastic feeling. Yeah, we never pushed any of our children towards military. They ended up there. Unfortunately, they ended up there after dad paid for college. So uh, <laughs> what a life that before I'd have hair implants in the Corvette right now. <laughs> if I didn't have to pay all that money for college. Oh, wow. Uh, they all turned out good, and I'm proud of all three of them. So Yeah, absolutely. I've taken my kids flying before. And, uh, and I got to give my wife special credit for allowing me to put all three of them in a Cessna 172 that I had no business flying, <laughs> and, uh, flying over our house and bringing them back. But uh, wow, that's and yeah, as long you, as you can, you, as long as you can nail the landing and the sight picture. Um, yeah, a lot of people don't realize they think, well, I've got 300 hours and I've been flying Cessnas and I can land this airplane on a dime. You're an airline pilot. Why can't you land this airplane? It's like, well. <laughs> we've been landing from about yeah. 50 feet up <laughs> you're landing from a few feet up it's a big difference yeah. but yeah you know it's uh, always always stressful when you take your kids or your wife on a trip that you're flying because if you don't nail that landing it, you know they're going to be yeah. scared forever that they look at you and they're like it's now based on this guy's skills yeah, which, yeah you may not get there. another redo <laughs> yes yeah yeah you gotta, you gotta grease it yeah. Well, I still get looked at on a daily basis and have my family members look at me and go, and they let you fly airplanes? <laughs> What's your backup plan? Yeah. yeah. Well, last uh, final few questions, Rob, would you? Okay, sure. Uh, so, Pete, if you could go back and whisper in your younger self's ear what would you tell yourself buy amazon and tesla at a <laughs> low low price and you wouldn't have to worry about work <laughs> or bitcoin yeah, yeah. <laughs> great advice yeah no bitcoin. Uh, i would definitely i would say uh, the guard the air national guard i would i would yeah. let myself know about that secret there you go yep and we also you know we like to ask this question simply because we like to give our guests an opportunity to just reflect for a moment and think back. Okay. Who had the biggest impact on your career in aviation? Hmm. I could, I could point to probably three instructors. So all you uh, uh, civilian instructors out there, you know, you play a big role in somebody's lives when you're teaching them how to fly. But, uh, I know my the guy that got me to solo was big. Uh, shout out to him. Uh, the guy that got me you know, the, to learn how to fly in the T-37. He was an interesting guy. He's an American uh, legacy carrier as well. And uh, he had 200 hours and he had, you know, my 
education in flying was his primary job. And it was like, there's two young kids teaching each other how to fly. It was pretty, pretty amazing that we survived that. But uh, he taught me a lot of good stuff about flying. And then I'd say two instructors down the road in the tanker that were uh, the old crusty majors that knew everything about how to fly the 707. And they were really good at what they did. And they were able to take me to new heights and, you know, confidence and learning things by probably doing things just a little bit off the normal path. But they taught me a lot. They had some great tricks in their bag that they handed off to me. So that's probably my th three or four guys that I'd have to credit for that. Nice. Excellent. Well, uh, Captain Lindner, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. As our flight draws to an end, we would like to thank all of you for coming along this journey with us. A very special thank you to Captain Pete Lindner for sharing this fantastic journey in aviation with us today. I also would like to thank our very special co-host, Rob D, for joining us. Please help us out by sharing this podcast online and with your friends. Be sure to subscribe or follow to the Squawk Ident podcast on whatever platform you are listening on. We also love receiving listener feedback. You can send us an email or even audio feedback via our website at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. It's as easy as recording a voice message on your iPhone or mobile device and submitting it in an email. On the website, you'll also find audio archives, photos from the flight line, guest book photos tab, and the Squawk Ident Pilot Shop, where you can find an assortment of t-shirts, hats, mugs, and much more. You can also contribute to the show financially right there on the homepage. Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram users can find us under Squawk Ident Podcast. Also, we want to thank you, the listener, for taking time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe and take care of each other. Bye, y'all. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Rob and Tony. See you later. See you later. <laughs> Stand by, guys. I'm not pushing buttons. 10,000 feet. That will fly. Airspeed. 40 knots. Course 290. No automatic pilot. Vancouver. I think it will be by the time we get there. It's got to.